0: I think the first time that I heard about the idea of sexual assault or rape was around the age of 13. I remember it pretty vividly. I was talking to my mom about wanting to go on a run. I think it was about 7 p.m. or so. Her immediate reaction was, You can't do that, Dorsa. I remember not really understanding her on what she meant. I had guy friends that would talk about taking runs all the time. How was I any different? She sat me down and explained what could happen at night or when you aren't aware as a woman. Her description was always of this big and scary man that would take you at night and never bring you back. Initially, that's always what I imagined rapists or harassers to be like, but as I grew up, I realized it could truly be anyone that's close to you. You never know who can be the next person to violate you, and that's a scary realization to have. Did you ever have a similar conversation with your sister or your mom about sexual assault or rape? The person that I have the honor of interviewing today is my dear friend, Rachel Templeton. Rachel, like me, is a fellow woman. I thought she could provide us with some more insight as to what it's like to be an independent modern woman that still has to worry about issues of assault and rape. Rachel, take it away.
1: So to answer your first question, no one ever flat out talked to me about sexual assault or rape. I just picked up on things as I grew up. I know I couldn't walk by myself, especially at night. I knew that I was catcalled more often if I was wearing a crop top or shorts. I think the closest thing to an eye-opening conversation like the one you had with your mother that I experienced was when I was in middle school. An old family friend was visiting us and I had just woken up. I brought him water still in my sleep shorts and when he thanked me he slapped the back of my thigh. This sounds relatively mundane but it's still something that I remember and makes me uncomfortable to this day. However, I am aware that while someone I trust making me feel uncomfortable in that way was not something I should have
0: experienced,
1: it could have been worse.
0: Now I completely understand. I can think of multiple situations with older men where I felt really uncomfortable. I have had older men try to grab my hand or tickle me, and all of that was completely just an invasion of my personal space. And those are just some small examples. Rape and sexual assault are constantly on women's minds. I'm careful to not go out after a certain hour of the day. I really rely on the buddy system when I feel uncomfortable in the slightest way. When I was 15, my parents got me pepper spray. I always check my back seat before I get into the car. There's so many more examples I can think of. Is that something you could say that you've also experienced as a woman, Rach?
1: Yes, I have also received pepper spray as well as a safety whistle, both when I was in elementary school. I always check to see if someone's following me when I go on walks. I don't know how to explain how terrifying it is when someone is going in the same direction and walks behind me for a few blocks. I feel even worse about it when I remember that, according to the Department of Justice, 73% of sexual assaults are perpetuated by non-strangers. I feel like rape and sexual assault are embody this nameless fear that constantly follows me around, and from what I hear, other women as well.
0: Women even have to worry about these things when it comes to hanging out with guy friends or dating. Every single time I go on a date with a guy, I turn on my location for a couple of friends, I make sure to pick a date spot that my friends could easily get to, we have group chats where they can check on me, and I definitely call my friends after a date to let them know that I'm safe. Even if I know the guy pretty well, it still concerns me. I have friends that have sexual assault stories and the predator was their boyfriend or their close guy friend. Honestly, you never know who to trust. Would you say that you worry about these things too, Rachel?
1: I do worry about them. I have a pretty substantial number of friends who are guys, and I hate that sometimes when we hung out pre-COVID, I would stop and ask myself if I was safe. Some things made me nervous, like realizing that I let one of my guy friends drive me somewhere and realizing I didn't have immediate means of leaving on my own, or when one of them would get a bit too touchy. At the same time, even though I've been conditioned to analyze the situations and plan for the worst when it comes to these guys I trust, walking down the street with a group of them makes me feel safe. Then I get frustrated because I don't want to have to question the people I trust or have to be in a group of boys to
0: to avoid getting catcalled. I think more than anything, this really makes me scared for college, mainly because I know that colleges are definitely a place for rape and sexual assault to take place. Do you have any fears about attending college, Rach? I do have fears about attending college. It's starting over
1: with no support system. There's not immediately going to be someone I can share my location with if I'm meeting someone I don't know that well. Also, I want nothing to do with frat parties, just I've heard from so many women about how college is one of the places where rape culture is the most evident. Having to start over and find people I trust in that environment seems very daunting.
0: Yeah, that is
1: completely understandable.
0: These feelings, emotions, and worries that Rachel and I are describing are the reality of what women have to go through every day. Nearly one in five women have been raped in the United States at some time in their lives, compared to the statistic that one in 71 men have been raped in the United States at some time in their lives. This statistic comes from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, and clearly there is a huge difference between rape rates for men and women. It's hard to deny that women seem to be affected more by rape and sexual assault issues compared to men. With this podcast, we will be mainly focusing on women's perspective within rape culture. We will specifically be looking at rapes that occur on college campuses. So let's begin. I'm Doris Zemanian, and this is Exploring Real World Issues. Most common places for rape and sexual assault to take place is on college campuses. According to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, also known as RAINN, 13% of all students experience rape or sexual assault at some point in their lives. Among graduate and professional students, 9.7% of females and 2.5% of males experience rape or sexual assault. Among undergraduate students, That rate rises to 26.4% of females and 6.8% of males who have experienced rape or sexual assault. So the real question here is what can be done about rape and sexual assault on campuses? Are institutions providing any real source of comfort? Based on an article by CBS News, students seem to be the ones that are actually taking action against these serious issues. In the summer of 2020, more than two dozen institutions around the United States, England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland were being flooded with student allegations of rape, harassment, stalking, and other forms of sexual abuse. Students began to share their stories of alleged campus sexual assaults on Instagram. One of the survivors who runs the sexual assault account for the University of St. Andrews stated, Our goal is to expose the reality of sexual abuse at our university, as well as empower survivors to share their stories anonymously and safely. One allegation on the St. Andrew's account read, Once at the house, he offered me a glass of water, which I drank. We walked around the house, a little chatting about nothing in particular, when I started to get dizzy. He told me I should sit down, so we went upstairs and he pushed me on his bed and started removing my clothes. I said no over and over, but he kept going. Then I realized how weak and dizzy I had been feeling and I couldn't really fight back. He raped me. Similar stories to this one have been shared across several anonymous survivor Instagram accounts in the United States. Instagram accounts have been made for schools like American University, Bard College, UC Berkeley, Brown, Columbia, Cornell, Dartmouth, George Washington University, Gettysburg, Northwestern, Rollins, Tulane, the University of Alabama, the University of Texas at Austin, Vassar, Washington University, and Wesleyan. Scott Berkowitz, who is the president of Rain, stated, In general, reporting rates are much lower when the predator is someone that the victim knows. And because most campus assaults fall into that category and often grow out of social situations, the reporting rate for campus assaults is quite low. Many compared these recent outpourings of stories similar to the stories of sexual violence that were shared on social media in 2017 when the hashtag MeToo went viral. For students, these stories serve as a warning for future classmates. The co-founder of the Gettysburg Survivors, which was a page made for students of Gettysburg College, stated, we're trying to give incoming students and prospective students a more realistic image of what they're getting into. I think a lot of people come into the school with the naive expectation that the school is going to fight for you no matter what. If someone hurts you, they will stand up for you. And that's simply not been the case for so many of us that we're trying to not necessarily scare them, but give them this knowledge so that they know to be weary of these situations and understand that they're not alone. That if something happens to them, it's not their fault. That this is a systemic issue that is campus-wide. That it's not just you. Some universities, like Brown, have begun to listen to their students' stories and create programs to educate their institution's members about toxic masculinity. They also plan to put more protocols in place to make parties safer. However, are these steps truly enough? Emily Yoff, a writer for The Atlantic, stated in her article, The Uncomfortable Truth About Campus Rape Policy, that she believes that too many campuses have this attitude that the person in question has the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. This statement is very similar to the logic that Edwin Meese had. Edwin Meese served as the attorney general for Ronald Reagan's administration. Meese stated that you do not have many suspects who are innocent of a crime. That's contrary. If a person is innocent of a crime, then he is not a suspect. Statements like this have caused women's claims of sexual assault and rape to be widely disregarded. One of the biggest questions I had when researching this topic was, what rules and regulations are there in place against sexual assault and rape on college campuses? One of the main administrations to tackle this issue was the Obama administration. On April 4th, 2011, the Obama administration sent out a letter that began with the greeting, Dear Colleague. This letter laid out a series of steps that schools would have to follow when addressing sexual assault and rape. Severe restrictions were placed on allowing the accused to question the accuser. This was done in order to prevent intimidation or trauma. The institutions had to appoint a staff member to act as a detective, prosecutor, judge, and jury. Schools were required to investigate anything that was defined under the categories of rape, sexual assault, sexual battery, and sexual corrosion. In addition, schools were told to investigate any reports of possible sexual misconduct, including those that came from a third party and those in which the alleged victim refused to cooperate. It seems like regulations, fear of negative social media campaigns, and bad press have pushed schools to give more attention to the issue of rape and sexual assault. However, more often than not, the code of conduct for these schools are vague, misleading, or too impractical. For example, some schools have implemented the rule of affirmative consent, which means that each touch and each action must be preceded by an explicit verbal granting of permission. To most, this seems impossible to do. NPR's Steve Inskeep had the opportunity to have a conversation with Dr. David Lysak of the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dr. Lysak wanted to interview what he calls undetected rapists, which are men who have never been charged or convicted of sexual assault or rape. According to Dr. Lysak, these undetected rapists are very forthcoming about their experiences. If anything, they're eager to talk about them. They view it as an opportunity to brag. Often, they look for vulnerable women, and their main weapon is alcohol. When hearing the findings of Dr. Lee Sack's experiment, I was reminded of the words of feminist Susan Brown-Miller. In her writing, Against Our Will, Men, Women, and Rape, Brown-Miller describes this degrading mindset that exists within society. She says that many people have the mindset that no woman can be raped against her will. She describes rape as this deliberate, hostile, violent act of degradation and possession on the part of the conqueror. Men are told to be the dominant sex. They are encouraged to take what they want when they want it. Simone de Beauvoir, who was a second-wave feminist, elaborates on many of the same points that Brown-Miller discusses. De Beauvoir points out that women often appear to men as sexual beings. She specifically states, For him, she is sex, absolute sex, no less. Clearly, this ownership mindset that many rapists have is something that has been prevalent throughout most, if not all, of human history. So what can we do as a society to help with this serious issue? Well, activists have thought of many ways to combat sexual assault and rape. Most notably, society can turn to the 15 ways to end rape list that activists associated with Denim Day have created. For those who do not know, Denim Day is an event in which people are encouraged to wear denim to raise awareness of rape and sexual assault. This year, it is taking place on Wednesday, April 28th. In this list, the main points that are made are that we should support victims instead of shaming them. We should learn to protect ourselves by taking self-defense classes. We should not be bystanders. It is our job to speak when we see injustice. And lastly, we should educate the people around us about sexual assault and rape. As a woman who was educated on the issues of sexual assault and rape from a young age, this is a very emotional subject for me to discuss. Again, as Rachel and I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, rape is something that is constantly on women's minds. My hope is not to sound insensitive to the male population that has been placed in these scary and horrible situations. However, I think it's important to highlight that women are most prominently the victims in these scenarios. I think a part of it goes back to how our society is structured. Women have been and are still often thought of as the non-dominant sex. The most important thing is that we educate our children and help them realize that first off, as a victim, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You have done nothing wrong. And second off, it is important to expose and shame bragging behavior that is associated with sexual assault and rape. It is nothing to be proud of. Often, I think that many hold the mindset of not wanting to ruin the accused's life. However, rape is something that can ruin the victim's life is something we need to pay attention to. As an ending note, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode on rape and sexual assault on college campuses. If you or a loved one have experienced sexual assault or rape and need help, please consider calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE or reach out online at online.rain.org. I'm Doris Zamanian, and this has been Exploring Real World Issues.